0: You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, I'm very happy to invite you to turn with me and your copy of God's Word to our sermon text for this morning, still in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Revelation chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. If you want to use one of the Black Pew Bibles, you can find this, of course, in the New Testament, almost to the very end of the Bible, on page 199, page 199. We have a a real blessing this morning because we get to observe a kind of passing anniversary. Now, you know, this past summer, we celebrated what was our nine-and-a-half-year anniversary Because our church got its start in the winter months, it doesn't seem very uh, exciting or warm to celebrate our anniversary in the winter. So we decided to start having an anniversary in the summer. So this coming summer, Lord willing, we'll celebrate our 10 and a half year anniversary. But this Sunday, today, November 20th, is actually a kind of anniversary for us because it was almost exactly 10 years ago. It was on November 18th. Uh, that was, you know, a couple of days ago, when we had our Thanksgiving dinner that we had our first worship service just fifteen hundred and eighty four feet from this spot right down the street at Maryland uh, Elementary School. We had our first worship service. And since then, I've preached 450 sermons. This, in fact, is the 450th. So I looked back, because I keep good notes, uh, to see what exactly did we do 10 years ago on this Sunday. And we preached the very first sermon from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. Here were our three points or truths on that Sunday. All God's promises are yes in Christ. Number two, God adopts his people Through the gospel. And number three, God seals his people with the pledge of his spirit. And we're delighted this morning to continue in the book of Revelation, which we have been in for quite some time, and it'll take us right through the end of the year, just a little past the end of the year, and then we will. Uh, call it a day and move on to the book of Philippians, the epistle of joy. And so we're very much looking forward to that. But this is an exciting day, 10 years of the Lord's faithfulness, and we certainly pray for 10 more. Well, As we look at this text this morning, I have entitled this message, The Fading Kingdom of Self. I don't know how many of you know this, but I am a lifetime gamer I've always loved to play video games all the way from the beginning when I was young, Atari, and then uh, PlayStation. In fact, my in-laws bought me my first PlayStation 1, then 2, and 3, and 4. And, uh, you know, I normally like to play sports games like Madden and 2K or games that are sort of simulated in the real world. I like to play those kinds of role-playing games. In fact, Josiah and I have a, a somewhat mismanaged franchise with the Orlando Magic going on right now. Now, if you have been tracking along with the sermons over the last couple of weeks, you know that that is almost word for word the very last introduction that I gave to the last sermon that I preached. What would it be like if that's the way I began every sermon? If I told you the same story about being a lifetime gamer and having a mismanaged franchise with the Orlando Magic with Josiah? It wouldn't work, would it? It wouldn't hold your attention. It wouldn't benefit us very much. It wouldn't do much for us, would it? But you see, that truth right there puts on display the infinite difference between my words and God's words, between my stories and God's stories, because that repetition week after week, day after day, morning after morning, moment after moment is exactly what the word of God does. It continually brings up the old truths again and again and again. The Bible is, if anything, a book of constant reminders. And the only way that that can be pulled off is because these words are infused with power that my words do not have, your words do not have, Our words have no power to speak anything into existence in our lives or in the world or anyone else's life. Our words have no power to captivate a human heart, to convert a human heart, to change someone's mind, to truly, in the the truest sense, encourage or or embolden or convict or anything else of meaning. Our words simply cannot compare to God's words. That is a main reason why, for the last 10 years, we have been doing everything that we can, though imperfectly, wildly imperfectly, to declare the words of God, those that have been revealed to us in his word, in the 66 books of the Bible, not our own words, and so we bring that truth yet again to this text because we hear another one of those repeated themes that runs all throughout the Bible, and it is the theme or the story of two kingdoms. There is a kingdom of God that is full of light and grace, and it in the, in the scriptures is constantly developing, it's constantly unfolding and emerging, and all the while, one of the key things that we have been watching in the book of Revelation is the forward-looking vision or revelation of John of what will come. And the, the main truth there is that in, in a way like no other time, the kingdom of God is coming on the scene. And it's coming on the scene to drive out and to fade away another kingdom And that other kingdom is the little kingdom of self. These two kingdoms, the kingdom of God in all of his grace and beauty and and mercy and power and the kingdom of self, which says, I will rule, I will be in control. My words are paramount. They've always been at conflict. And here we have this theme reminded to us again given to us again, so that we may think carefully about which kingdom we belong to, which kingdom we will serve, and which kingdom we really are looking forward to. The kingdom of God is coming into brighter view, and the little kingdom of self is fading away. As we've been reading through the book of Revelation, we have found that this book talks about that little kingdom of self in a number of different ways. One is by using the title Babylon, talking about the world system of ultimate unbelief that is at work in the world and has been since really since the beginning, since the fall of Adam and Eve, our first parents. It's the kingdom that has been working in our own hearts from the moment we were born, And it's the kingdom that must be driven out by the grace of God and replaced by his true and lasting kingdom, his kingdom of heaven, his kingdom of the gospel. And so this morning, I want us to see from these verses in Revelation 18, three characteristics of the fading kingdom of self. Here they are. If you're taking notes, I'll tell you where we're going so that you can be prepared. First characteristic of the fading kingdom of self is that that kingdom is characterized by a pile of sins. Second, that kingdom is characterized by a penalty multiplied. And third, that little kingdom of self is characterized by a prideful state. Let's look first at the first Three verses of this text as a kind of introduction to remind us of where we have been in the book of Revelation and pick up from here and to be reminded of where we are in human history in this vision looking forward into what God has planned for the world at a time in which this world system, Babylon, will ultimately fall and with it, the little kingdom of self, once and for all. Of course, God has been pushing this little kingdom of self out of us as people since we came to know him, but in the end, he will finally eradicate it. This is what we read beginning in verse 1 of Revelation 18. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated from his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean thing and a, and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird for all the nations have fallen because of the wine of the passion of of her sexual immorality. This is a way of talking about the world system being uh, unfaithful to the true God. And the kings of the earth have committed acts of sexual immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich from the excessive wealth of her luxury. And that brings us to this first characteristic. We want to see each of these for what they're worth and then be reminded of the good news that has come to us in the midst of such a kingdom to call us out and to bring us into the kingdom of light, out of the kingdom of darkness. This first characteristic, again, is a pile of sins. In the next couple of verses, the little kingdom of self is unmasked. Sin has piled high as heaven Listen to what it says in verse four. I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive any of her plagues. Verse five, for her sins have piled up as high as heaven and God has remembered her offenses. Most of us probably know that the highest peak in the world is Mount Everest at 29,000 feet. It's actually named after George Everest, the former surveyor general of India, But it has been known by other names and is to this day. The Tibetan name for Mount Everest is Chomolungma. It means Mother Goddess of the World. Because this is in Nepal, the Nepali name is Sagarmatha, meaning Goddess of the Sky. These kinds of names put on display exactly what people who are at the base of the mountain see they see a peak that is reaching into the heavens. And when they see something like that, they're compelled to recognize it. They're compelled to name it. But there is an even greater peak in the world. And what's so interesting and telling about this peak and the nature of sin is that it almost goes completely unnoticed. It goes almost completely neglected, even by you, even by me. And it is the reality that infinitely higher than Mount Everest at 29,000 feet is a mountain that we cannot see with our eyes. It is the mountain or the pile of our sin. Here's another one of these repeated themes throughout the scriptures, that your sin and my sin is so enormous that it has placed before us an insurmountable obstacle between you and God, between me and God. Just go ahead and cap it at Mount Everest and think about your sin that way. It is, of course, much greater than that. But if we need a visual picture, think of it this way. That is my sin. Over all of the days that I have lived, my sinful heart has produced sin after sin after sin, law-breaking after law-breaking after law-breaking, transgression after transgression after transgression, and it has been piled high in front of me between me and God, an insurmountable debt of sin. This is exactly what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 18 when he tells the parable of two debtors. You remember that there was one debtor who owed his master an insurmountable debt amount of money, 10,000 talents. In today's wealth, that would be something like 10 million dollars. The whole point is that it's an amount of money he could never pay off. It's a debt that he could never eliminate. And you remember that his debt is eliminated because he begs for mercy and he has no way of, of overcoming the debt himself, no matter what he does, how long or how hard he works. And so his master in that situation has pity upon him. reflecting the grace of God who gives us mercy and grace in Christ for our insurmountable debt. And then you remember what he does after that. He goes out and he finds another servant, another debtor who owed him a small amount of money, a hundred denarii, a hundred days wages, and he's unwilling to forgive him. And of course, that whole story does not play out very well for the unforgiving debtor or servant. But the point of this parable is Is not only to show what happens when you're unforgiving, it's to show exactly what our biggest problem is. What is my biggest problem with God? My biggest problem is that my sins have piled up in front of Him, reaching all the way to heaven. How in the world could I ever be forgiven? How in the world could I ever be free? How in the world could I ever dream of reaching the harps of gold in heaven to be with him? Only by grace. And so my friends, this morning, I have good news. And the good news is actually right here in verse 4, right under our noses. It's the good news that's so easy to overlook and miss because our vision is not always very good. We we don't see the big pile of sin in front of us and it seems like even, even more seldom do we recognize the solution. Look at verse four again and see if you can find the good news. The good news is right there in the words, come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive any of her plagues. God has called his people out of this world, out of this kingdom, this little kingdom of self, the kingdom of sin, a kingdom that is, that is broken by a mounting weight and pile of sins that cannot be overcome. And he does this all by grace we're seeing two really key doctrines right here in these verses. The first is the doctrine that we sometimes call total depravity. The doctrine of total depravity means that we're, we're not as bad as we possibly could be, but it means that everything about us has been tainted by sin. It means that I have never, I have never done a truly pure good deed. I have never spoken a truly true word. I have never thought a truly worshipful thought because everything about me has been tainted by sin. That is the worst news of all. That is what the Bible is talking about when it tells us that there's a pile of sins in front of us that has separated us from God. But then there is the good news and it's the news of unconditional grace. That God, for no merit in us, not for seeing anything good in us, has by grace alone called for us to come out. He has welcomed us to come to him, and he's given us everything that we need so that we can come to him. He himself, by himself, by his grace, has overcome the insurmountable debt and pile of our sins. And he has brought us into his covenant family, never to let us go, to keep working on us, to keep changing us, to keep driving out this little kingdom of self that keeps rearing its ugly head in our hearts and lives. And he keeps doing it by grace upon grace upon grace. I wanna share with you a brief paragraph from a book called All of Grace by Charles Spurgeon. Listen to what he says about this offer and this calling that God gives to his people to come out and belong to him. This is what he says. To sum up all in one, what I mean is this. There have straggled in here this morning the poor working man, the struggling mechanic, The gay young fop, that's old language for somebody who's vain about his appearance. The man who leads a fast life, the wretch who leads a coarse life, the woman perhaps who has gone far astray. I mean to say such, you are lost. But the Son of Man is come to seek and to save you. I mean to say to you, sons and daughters of moral parents who are not converted but perhaps feel yourselves even worse than the immoral, I mean to say to you that you are not past hope yet. God will love you freely. And this is how his love is preached to you. Whosoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. Come as you are. God will accept you as you are. Come as you are without any preparation or fitness. Come as you are. And where the cross is lifted high with the bleeding son of God upon it, fall flat on your face, accepting the love manifested there, willingly receiving this day the grace which God willingly and freely gives This is the good news of the gospel, that even though you and I have or have had an insurmountable pile and debt of sin between you and God, that he has made a way, he has given a solution and the solution is his son that he has sent his only son into the world to live a perfect life in our place. He has no pile of sins of his own, but rather by dying on the cross, he takes our pile of sins on himself and they crush him to death. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead. So that then he can, as a living savior, welcome us in with all the power to change that we need. And that is exactly what you're reading In Revelation chapter 18 verse 4, a call, an effectual call, come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive any of her plagues. Here God calls you out of this little kingdom of self and into a kingdom of grace upon grace. I want you to hear that. I want you to contemplate that. If you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, these things are foreign to you. The way that I am talking about Christianity, of what it means to follow Jesus in this way, you don't understand. I didn't understand it either. I'm sure that people talked to me about it before I became a Christian. I want you to hear that God is calling sinners like me out of my insurmountable debt, out of my little kingdom of self, And into his kingdom, the kingdom of his beloved son. That he is offering to you grace and mercy to forgive you without any works from you, but simply by faith in his son. I want you to hear that call. But I don't want you just to hear it. I want you to respond if God so wills to awaken your heart and to give you a sense of his grace and his holiness and the opportunity before you that you could come out of this dead in kingdom that is and will be fallen, fallen, that you would come in by faith alone, that you would place your trust in Jesus Christ as Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, said many, many years ago, fall on your face before him. He will receive you. He will pick you up. He will convert you. He will forgive you. He will save you. He will have you. I want you to hear that. And I want you to respond. Your response can be in your heart right now. By placing your trust in Jesus Christ. If that is something that God works in your heart, then you should tell us us about this. We want to walk with you. It could be that you're not ready for that, that that's not quite where you are yet. There are still questions to be answered. We want to answer those questions. And so we want to get together and talk about these things. Let's look at more of the Bible together. Because we believe that there is no better kingdom than the emerging kingdom of God. And there is no worse place to be than the little kingdom of self. It makes promises and never keeps them. But not with the Lord. Because all of his promises are yes in Christ. But you know, to really get the good news of grace, you need the bad news of judgment. And God has remembered the offenses of Babylon, and therefore Babylon, this little kingdom of self, faces an ultimate penalty. And that's the second characteristic of this fading kingdom of self, is not only that there is a pile of sins, but there is a penalty multiplied Hear this and hear this good. Did you catch the exceedingly bad news in verse five? You see, that's the weird thing about us. We are so hard of hearing and we are so dull of seeing that we not only don't see the good news, we don't even really see the bad news, but there it is right under our noses at the end of verse five. What is the worst news of all? Let me tell you, the worst news of all is not that there is a giant pile of sins in front of you between you and God. The worst news of all is that he knows about it. Look at the end of verse five. Your sins have piled as high as heaven and God has remembered them. This is where it gets dangerous. This is where the penalty is multiplied. He has remembered them. That's very different than what God does for people whom He calls to Himself and they come out of the little kingdom of self. What does He do? The Bible says He remembers their sins no more. He knows all about them, He sees them, they're there. But this is the bad news for all of those who will not come out of the little kingdom of self. God remembers your sins. And because he is a just and righteous God, he will bring a just and righteous penalty from the ultimate judge of the universe. Look at verse 6. You see that voice, the same voice that calls out of sin with power, powerfully declares on those who will not come out the ultimate penalty on the little kingdom of self to which they belong. He says, pay her back, pay her back even as she has paid and give back to her double according to her deeds in the cup, which she has mixed the cup of her sin mix twice as much for her. This is what we might call the voice of God's law. God has given a strict and rigid law of expectations for everyone in his world. He is the king. He sets the rules. But what has happened? The world has not kept the law, and therefore the law declares, pay them back. The her here is Babylon. It's this little kingdom of self. It's that ultimate kingdom of unbelief that is populated by anyone who will not come to Jesus Christ as the solution to their sin, as the savior of the world, as the satisfier of every human heart. Pay her back. But note this He doesn't just say pay her back you get a sense of how serious God is about sin, how serious he is about his glory, because he says, pay her back double. This is a way that the Bible often talks about God's comprehensive judgment on both deeds and the hearts that are captivated by sin. Double, both dynamics. Jeremiah talks about a double penalty as God's way of indicating Punishment in full measure. And we read about that right here. Give back to her double according to her deeds. What a terrible (laughs) contemplation that the God of the universe would give us a penalty like this. Do you know what it feels like when you're riding down the road and you see the blue light start flashing behind you? I don't know if it matters who you are or where you are. Your heart just sinks. Mine does. I'm a very nominal volunteer police chaplain. And even my heart sinks. I become instantly afraid. The law starts to condemn me for whatever I've done. I'm searching for what I've done. Why? Because I know that there is a penalty coming for my wrongdoing. The authorities have found me. They are bound to give me what I deserve. Anyone with a conscience feels the dread of what we're due for our lawbreaking, And here it is reminded to us again that there is no exception when considering the penalty of our sin. The weight of our sin, the condemning voice of the law, wears on us. It continually says to you, "You have done wrong." You cannot save yourself. It offers you no grace whatsoever. It offers you no mercy. It only offers you penalty. But I have good news. The good news is that for those who have come out of the little kingdom of self, that penalty has been paid. That enormous pile of sins that had earned us a double penalty for all of our deeds in heart and in in life has been paid. You heard this earlier from Isaiah 53. You get a glimpse of the gospel in the Old Testament. It talks about Jesus and what Jesus did for sinners like me who deserve a penalty like this. It says he was pierced for our offenses. He was pierced for my offenses. He was crushed for my wrongdoings. The punishment for my well-being was laid upon him. And by his wounds, I am healed. If you're a Christian, you can say that. If you're a Christian, you should say that. You should say that every day. You should rejoice over that every day. Look at what he has done. Because verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord, Yahweh, the King of the universe, has caused the wrongdoing of us all To fall on him. Of who? Whose wrongdoing has fallen on him? Ours. There's another doctrine, another key theological truth that we want to grab and be able to rejoice in as we understand it more. It's the doctrine of particular redemption. That God has particularly redeemed you. He has given Christ to pay the penalty for your particular sins. All those times that you were panicked about your life, untrusting of the God who rules it, all of those times that you drank to forget that you lied about the truth, that you killed or committed adultery in your heart. It goes on and on and on. All of those penalties were placed in a cup and drank by Jesus. What about this cup that we're reading here? This is a cup of wrath. It is the cup of wrath that the little kingdom of self must drink in the end because that is what she deserves. Listen to what it says in Psalm 75. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord and the wine foams. It's well mixed. He pours out of this. Certainly all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink its dregs. To the very last drop, the world must drink the wrath of God. And that was my cup. And if you're in Christ today, that was your cup because those were your sins in the cup. It's your wrath his wrath that you deserve to drink. But we bring it into even clearer view in Luke 22. Do you remember this? He withdrew from them in the garden of Gethsemane about a stone's throw, and he knelt down, Jesus, and he began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. What kind of cup would the Lord Jesus himself want to pass on if he could the cup of God's wrath. But he was more committed to the will of God. He was more committed to all of those that God had planned to call out of Babylon, the little kingdom of self, that he would cheerfully, joyfully drink to its dregs. The penalty multiplied for them. The penalty multiplied for you and me. Therefore, I think that when we read these words, we should do at least one thing central to all the rest. Be glad. Be glad. You know that that is the most frequent command in Scripture? It's not to obey. It's not to repent. It's to be happy. God most frequently tells you, His people, be happy. Be glad. And this is why. We need to look no further Than what grace has done. That is the source of our gladness, but yet it is a fight for us in this world. Let us be the kind of people that fight to be glad for grace. And let's be the kind of people who know that the greater our gladness, the more we will be like Christ. And that is what we need most, even in this life. One last look at this little kingdom of self, into the dark heart of this kingdom. We see what is really at work underneath it all. This kingdom lives and exists in what I would call a prideful state. That really strikes at the heart of what is wrong with every human heart, with every fallen person. That is what is wrong with me. As even John Calvin has said, we are all for now still a little bit unbelievers. Because there is still part of us, some remaining sin in us, that God is working by his grace to root out of us as this little kingdom of self is fading away. And yet we should pursue that because we see what is true about this kingdom from which we have been called. In verse 7, notice what he says. To the extent that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, To the same extent, give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and I am not a widow and will never see mourning. These verses tell us something important. They tell us that God really, really, really hates self-worship. This is what's at the heart of this little kingdom of self, is self-worship. Look at what her sin amounts to. It is a glorified self. It is lived in luxury. It is lived in a constant pursuit of self to get more and more and more from this world rather than looking to the ultimate satisfier of hearts. This kind of language we use all the time, though we don't notice it. We take the suffix and we put it at the end of a word, which is ship. It's the little piece of our language that tells us of our state of being. We say that we have a friendship. That we're in the state of being friends. Or someone gets a scholarship, is in the state of being a scholar. Or citizenship, is in the state of being a citizen. That's where this word Worship comes from. It's, it's the word worth And the whole point to the, to the fading kingdom of self is that it's in a state of self-worth. A state of self-worship. This is at the heart of all sin. The little kingdom of self is a kingdom of self-worship. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that is that no one in that kingdom is worthy no one in that kingdom has worth that would that would require any kind of worship that would call for any kind of worship Notice the pride of this heart at the center of this kingdom. I sit as a queen and I'm not a widow and will never see mourning. Ultimate pride before the God of the universe and a pile of sin with penalties multiplied being doled out just before her to say, I will never mourn. That's why he says, for this reason, in one day her plagues will come. Plague and mourning and famine and she will be burned up with fire. This is the coming day of ultimate judgment. For the Lord God who judges her is strong. What is his response to this kind of heart? It is to give her torment and mourning in one day burned up. But yet again, I have good news. Because the gospel of grace not only rescues us from this kingdom, but it also changes prideful, independent hearts into humble, dependent hearts. And how does it do it? It does it all by grace. It does it by a wooing work of grace, not by threatenings, not by punishments, but by grace. This is the good news of the gospel, that if you are in Christ, you are not in a state of worth. You are in a state of grace. We as a church want to rejoice in this. Therefore, the last application of this text this morning for all of us, the challenge to us is to pour ourselves, pour yourself into God's grace because he has poured his grace out on you. Do everything that you can. Set your heart and mind to understand more every day. What it means to be in a state of grace. Because this is the fundamental difference. This is the fundamental change that every person needs. This is how you're transferred from a kingdom of darkness in a little kingdom of self to the kingdom of God's beloved Son, a kingdom of light. It is because grace intervenes. And so, yet again, we are glad. He's always working in us. In fact, this week, if your community group meets, even though it's Thanksgiving week, we'll have an opportunity in those groups to discuss, in fact, six characteristics. You can look on the online bulletin and find those in there and begin thinking about them, praying about them in your own life. Six characteristics of gospel repentance, the kind of changes that God is at work in us so that we can see where we are and we can see how we should pray and we can see how we still, we still need to change. This is what we want to be doing together. But I do want to invite you now, before we sing again, to stand so that we can call out to this God once again. Go ahead, please stand. We can ask him to continue working his grace, which is what we need the most. Our Father, this morning, we give you so much thanks for your grace. Perhaps now more than we would have just 35 or 40 minutes ago because we have seen more clearly from your word the working of your grace. God, we know that our sins had piled high to heaven and separated us from you, that we could not know you, we could not save ourselves and our penalty had been multiplied because of our our pride, because of our refusal to come to you. But when we would not come to you, you came to us and by grace you entered our world and you met us And you took us as your own and you have changed us. Oh God, we we give you thanks. And we pray this morning that you would continue your good work of grace, that your grace would bear fruit upon fruit upon fruit in our hearts and lives. We wanna be different, we wanna be changed. We know we have a long way to go, but you are committed to the long road. And so we trust you today and we ask you to help us. And we pray that you would make us glad because of grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.